WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm, I'm listening to Film Sociology, and, and uh, it's, it's a real program. It's great. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplex and the art house. What's new on video and streaming? And you might also hear about some dead people we like. We don't have time for dead people we don't like. <laughs> anyway, this is Film Sociology, where you'll find out what's the next cinematic marvel. It was unbelievable! <laughs> and what's just a movie. Shut up! My God! You got no freaking lie! Okay. Here's your host and my dad, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosi. This show is available on iTunes, and like all of the podcasts here at WFYI, available on Spotify. Well, friends, we got through another week. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying sane. Hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're good, staying good to one another. And hope you're voting between now and, of course, the big day on Tuesday. But I also hope you've been distracting yourself with some new or new-to-you movies as well as falling back on old favorites. And uh, we'll get to the grab-a-pencil por- grab portion of the show. Um, I didn't see a whole lot this week because, full disclosure, I'm in rehearsal for a show that's hopefully going to be mounted in December a radio version of It's a Wonderful Life at Richmond Civic, so I'll be shamelessly plugging that when it gets a little closer. But I've also been uh, working the polls as well as my daughter, so, uh, you know, that's gotten <laughs> life gets in the way of things sometimes. But I'm because it's Halloween weekend, I am going to dip into the archives and uh, and we'll I'll replay my epic chat with Rich Coes, a.k.a. Spanguli. Of course, you can hear what well, you can see Spanguli Saturday nights at eight on MeTV if you have that channel. Of course, last week, Sammy Terry was on. You can go to SammyTerry.com for all the information and events. He's got stuff going on this weekend in person as well as online. So go go check that out. Support your local horror show hosts if you can. Okay, so there's there's only three films I got to watch, and they were all on video. Uh, the best of the lot from Corneth Home Video, called The President, and it's set in an un it's set in an unnamed country. Although we found out it was filmed in the country of Georgia, but it's what happens. And this was really fun timing watching this uh, the week before an election of a dictator facing the people he has brutalized by by his regime after his own government is overthrown. You have a moment of the family in a car, in a limousine. Um, Of course, they are up in their high perch, and they realize that uh, everything down below is not well. And he sends his family, except for his grandson. The grandson will not leave his side uh, to fly away to a a neutral country so they don't have to face uh, certain consequences. Uh, There's a great moment early on between grandson and grandfather where, uh, first off, the grandson dresses identical to his grandfather in full general, president general, military uniform. The the lad wants ice cream. Grandpa says that makes you soft. And there's a great moment where he, the the president, the grandfather, uh, picks up the phone and and orders that all the lights be turned out, all the power be turned out, and the, the boy sees it. And then gives the phone to the boy. The boy tells the, the person on the other end to turn on the power, turn off the power, turn on the power. The boy is infected with the power. So um, you have two things going on here You in this film. You have um, the grandfather, the former president, and the grandson on the run, on the lam, um, dodging and trying to get it, go, through, uh, go through little villages in disguises. Um, just trying to avoid everything. But there's also, as, as much of a brute this guy is, there's also a bonding story between grandfather and grandson. Doesn't end well, but pretty powerful. So uh, it also shows how the other end, the current, the new regime, can be at times just as brutal as the current one. It just so happens to be on your side so to speak. So look for the film The President from Cornet Films. Excellent work. Really enjoyed it. 
Um, the other one from uh, this is from Film Movement Classics. This is one I had not seen, and I need to see more uh, more earlier work from Peter Sellers. But this was his lone directorial effort, uh, a film called Mr. Topaz, apparently based on a play. Uh, Sellers plays the the character, the title role, an honest teacher who loses his job over not adjusting a grade of a student who comes from a very wealthy family. And uh, what ha- along the way, he, uh, at the same time, I should say, has a crush on a fellow teacher who also happens to be the head mis- headmaster's daughter. And uh, Topaz winds up getting a job as a managing director for a business owned by a corrupt politician played by Herbert Lom. This is before uh, The Pink Panther. Uh, but actually a nice twist with uh, with – Sellers' character at the end. This is one of those really nice, understated performances from Sellers. I think American audiences, obviously, you think uh, Inspector Clouseau and, of course, Dr. Strangelove. Um, but it's, and, and, of course, I think his best performance in being there, um, his final great film. But I think pe- folks think about, especially in Hollywood, in, in America, um, the, the characters he played that were over the top. Of course, we... We have to never forget, uh, sadly, that his final film was the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. And it's not the first time he plays an Asian character because he did one in Murder by Death. But his, you know, he got paid a lot of money to clown it up. So uh, so there's that. But this is one of these understated performances uh, and some nice. So don't expect wacky, but expect really nice rooted work from Peter Sellers in the film Mr. Topaz from 1961. That is from Film Movement Classics. And finally, from Indie Picks, a film called Three Comrades, set in modern-day St. Petersburg. It's about three mid-level sales managers in their 20s. Their, their, their office space is great, and not the film, but their workspace is great because it's one small room with four desks and three guys. And sales are low, the boss is ranting at them, and what happens when these three go out on a night during the week to go drinking and, well, of course, eventual gallivanting? So the only, I guess, the nice thing I can say about this is uh, it's nice to know that you can make a Neil Laboot film in Russia if you want that. If you do, Three Comrades is on Indie Picks. Um, it, it, as, let's, let's put it this way: as the evening goes on, of course, their encounters become more and more unpleasant. If you're into that, so there you go. That's that's what I got to see that was new this week. Um, going over to. What's at the drive-ins and streaming? Of course, you're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Oh, big weekend, of course, at the Tibbs and Skyline Drive-In. At the Tibbs Drive-In on screen one this weekend, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, the first Scream, and the first Saw. That's all on screen one. Screen two, the, the universal trifecta. These are the originals, Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. And then on screen three, for the younger ones, Hotel Transylvania and Coraline. And then on screen four, for you 80s fans, Ghostbusters and They Live. Put on the glasses. That's all at the Tibbs Drive-In. This weekend at the Skyline Drive-In in Shelbyville, they're showing The Nightmare Before Christmas and Sleepy Hollow. So that's happening over in uh, Shelbyville. Um, a few uh, uh, virtual events at IU Cinema. Uh, of course, the com- 2020 comedy Dead is running through November 4th. Uh, Maroney for President through November 11th. Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President through November 18th. Uh, Nation Time through November 11th. And uh, Radium Girls through November 18th. And uh, Friday, November 6th, a special virtual event of the 1920 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, composer Ron Jorgensen, scoring engineer Carl Newmark, and the IU Jacobs School of Music Associate Professor Larry Groupe are scheduled to be present for a virtual conversation and interactive Q&A moderated by IU Cinema Events and Operations Director Jessica Javis-Tag. That is 7 o'clock, Friday, November 6th of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then Tuesday, November 10th, at 7 o'clock, the 2020 documentary, The Painter and the Thief. All of that is happening at IU Cinema. And uh, and shout-out to my gang over at uh, Can Can Cinema. How you doing, guys? Thank you for the shout-out. Um, 
On Monday, November 9th, they are doing our Nation Family Album, a webinar as part of the Spirit and Place Festival. You have to go online to register. Go to cancanindie.com to be a part of that. All right, friends, grab a pencil. Let's go through what you've been watching, and hopefully you'll be inspired to check out some films as well, old and new or new to you. We start online, of course, with my buddy Eric. Uh, first time viewing The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from 1943, which he deemed smashing, as well as The Trial of the Chicago 7, the new, uh, uh, Barry, uh, oh. <laughs> uh, the new Aaron Sorkin film, sorry, uh, which he deemed excellent. Of course, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Mark Rylance, and many, many others. Uh, his rewatch, the magnificent 1941 film of the Maltese Falcon, of course, and he thought me he thought suspicion was mediocre. Wow, with uh, Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine. So controversial film take there about uh, suspicion. And uh Saboteur, good plus, of course from 1942. So uh thank you Eric. Uh over on Twitter, we have um at Camel Drags. He watched the uh, cam- at I'm sorry, he or she or they. Uh, at Camel Drags to watch the 2014 film White God. Eric writes Joker, most of Jumanji 2, Dr. Sleep, and Suicide Squad, Birds of Prey. Joker was the only one worth watching. Um, let's see. Going on, Emily writes uh, The Blair Witch Project, Hearts Beat Loud, Safety Not Guaranteed, Spotlight, Room, Cooley High, Night Catches Us, Yes, God, Yes, and Rebecca, and then she wrote in parentheses, 2020, unfortunately. Um, Iffy the Dopester writes, The Trial of the Chicago 7, eye-opening account of federal prosecution becoming overtly political during the Nixon administration. That is correct. Uh, Popcorn Bites, at Popcorn Bites, writes, Sherlock Jr., Mr. and Mrs. North, Saratoga, and lastly, Frankenstein-created woman. It is that weekend, friends. Um, Spooky Walrus, a.k.a. Stephen Foxworthy. Uh, more horror movies this week. Bone Tomahawk, Hush, Peeping Tom, The Invitation, The Original Psycho, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2, Green Room, that's a scary film of a different kind, uh, Bird Box, The Witch, Midsummer, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Bad Hair. Oh, and of course, Borat's subsequent movie film. All of that is on Twitter. Thank you, gang. We now go to my Facebook page, and we start with Jay, who writes, Watched a documentary on bourbon called Neat. It was pretty good. Actually learned some things. Diana also writes, We were enthralled with Neat. Craig writes, Oh, he watched Ken Russell's The Devils. Uh, a film is as twisted as Vanessa Redgrave's neck. I'm so happy I got to see that in the cinema. Um, yes, I, I'm glad you got to watch it, Craig. I, I have a soft spot for the lunatic that is Ken Russell. Um, he, Craig also watched The Wind That Shakes the Barley, the Ken Loach film, and My Friend Irma, although I didn't make it through that one. Keep trying, Craig. Um, Joellen writes, Netflix's Rebecca, kind of meh. Kristen Scott Thomas was good as Mrs. Danvers, of course. Uh, Nick writes, The Reflecting Skin, Evil Dead 2, Body Cam, On the Rocks, Cello, City of the Living Dead, Antiviral, Audition, and Maximum Overdrive. Linda writes, Mr. Mom, again. Tell Joan to call me. Uh, Taylor writes, Birds of Prey, The Racket, Sleepless in Seattle, Star Trek, Black Patch, Mr. Wright, Batman, The Killing Joke, Spaceballs, Oceans 12 and 13, and Spotlight. Uh, Sam writes, Sam Watermeyer, Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives, best Jason film I've seen yet, as well as Nesting Dolls. Uh, Missy writes, Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, with and with honors. Um, Catherine writes, Borat, subsequent movie film, Big Hero 6, Irresistible, Crimson Peak, Pacific Rim, and Housebound. Catherine, I am not fast. Uh, Brian writes, Fury. Lisa writes, I'm on the series The Queen's Gambit. It has slowed my movie watching, um, but she's enjoying it. Monica writes, The Original Poltergeist. Tell Joe Beth Williams to call me. Uh, Diana writes, Rebecca, Queen's Gambit, and Haunting of Bly Manor. 
Darren writes Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, The Omen, and Borat's subsequent movie film. Jackie writes The Secret of Nim, a childhood favorite, and also the first movie we rented when mom and dad bought the family's first Betamax. Good one, Jackie. Very cool. The the giant, loud, top-loading Betamax, right? And, of course, we, we had a Betamax as well back in the 70s. Who knew? Um, Ed writes, I've gotten hooked on Haunting at Hill House. Jed writes, I've been watching the episodes that are out of The Good Lord Bird. Always wanted to see a show based on John Brown. Glad I finally got to see it. Also watched the new movie Happy Halloween Scooby-Doo. I highly recommend this one with guest stars of Elvira and the Scarecrow from DC Universe. Thank you, Jed. Kim writes, uh, Clue, Sticks and Stones with Dave Chappelle. And all four shows in latest season of my, David Letterman's My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. Cheers to my favorite radio guy. Thank you, Kim. Or are you talking about Dave? It's all right. Uh, Nancy writes, Howard the Duck, The Shining, Legally Blonde 2, and Borat subsequent movie film. <laughs> Melissa writes, okay, here goes. Halloween, Halloween 2, Friday the 13th, The Current War, Scream 4, Urban Legend, and Urban Legend's Final Cut. Uh, Jennifer writes, Rebecca, both 2020 and 1940, and The Queen's Gambit. I like them all, but the original Rebecca is still my favorite. Adam writes, Kill Your Friends. That's a title, folks, not a command. Adrian writes, Rebecca and Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, Jackie writes, Borat and Unfit. Um, Dylan writes, uh, Color Out of Space. It's really good. Evils of the Night, one of the craziest films I've seen. I can't wait to screen it at my first post-pandemic Walter Paisley movie house nights. And Halloween H2O still kind of holds up, mainly thanks to Jamie Lee Curtis and Adam Arkin grounding it. But, man, does that score suck eggs. Wow. Uh, Britt writes Hubie Halloween, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, Disney's Robin Hood, and Black Panther. Maria, Maria writes White House Down. It could be a title. It could be what she's hoping for. Hi, Maria. Frank writes, uh, I finally saw Inherit Vice. Quite a surprise. It is. I like it as well. It's a, it's it's kind of Paul Thomas Anderson's Big Lebowski, but more cerebral. So very cool. Uh, Devin, like, Devin writes, uh, Miss Congeniality, Beetlejuice, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mark writes, Moneyball. Sean writes, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows. It's... Chapters 1 and 2, The Lair of the White Worm, another Ken Russell bonkers movie there, and Despicable Me. Jay writes the Underworld Trilogy. Hello, Kate Beckinsale. Uh, Jessica writes Books of Blood, The Mortuary Collection. Tomorrow I'll watch Nightmare and Christmas, Nightmare for Christmas with and Edward Scissorhands. Uh, Kate writes Rebecca, Blair Witch 2, and Train to Busan. Kelsey writes uh, Coco and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Roxana writes Hocus Pocus, of course. It's that time of year. And, my, and our friend Dougie is in it. Uh, Frank writes, I made a film called Future Cleft. Does that count? Frank? Yes. Uh, Annie writes Rebecca. Brent writes David Burns Utopia. Martin also chiming in on Ditto. It was amazing. Lisa writes Dracula Untold and Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's definitely that time of year. Barbara writes Rebecca. Terry writes, Season of the Witch, a.k.a. Hungry Wives from 1972, Shivers, and Don't Look Now. A big favorite of mine. Absolutely brilliant film. Hello, Julie Christie. Jim writes, Dog Day Afternoon. Sarah writes, I rewatched The Old Guard. It was even better this time. Uh, Laura writes, The New Borat. Pam writes, Halloween. Dave writes, Citizen Kane, Scarface, Face in the Crowd. Good time on that one. Space Cowboys, Sister Act, and Dear White People. And, and then he also wrote, I was surprised to note that A Face in the Crowd came three years before Elmer Gantry. It's a good grifter double feature right there, Dave. Thanks. Uh, Michael writes Halloween. Dustin writes uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, The Best Man, Aaron Brockovich, and American Masters, Michael Tilson Thomas, Where Now Is. Uh, Ashley writes Coraline, and I'm watching Macau tonight. Eric writes, Hunt for the Wilder People. Rachel writes, Van Helsing, Hocus Pocus, and A Comedy of Terrors. 
Daniel writes Murder on the Orient Express, the 1974 version, Borat's subsequent movie film, The Golden Coach, Whatever Works, The Original Witches from 1990, The Petrified Forest, An Irrational Man, Bride of Frankenstein, Trilogy of Terror, and Strange Bedfellows. Daniel writes Borat's subsequent movie film. Cassie writes House on Haunted Hill, Trilogy of Terror, The Tingler, and Thirteen Ghosts. And I've been rewatching the original Dark Shadows series. Cassandra writes uh, Abominable, and we've been watching The Crown on Netflix. Gretchen writes The Trip, and The Trip to Italy, and The New Borat, and La Llorona. Uh, Joe writes Borat subsequent movie film, Quiet Storm, The Ryan Artest Story, Archive, The Karate Kid Co- Part 3, Gags the Clown, Runaway, and Raw Deal. Kelly writes Lights Out. David writes Borat, subsequent movie film, and The Greatest Showman. Gene writes Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Old school there, Big Mama. Uh, Rebecca writes uh, Borat, subsequent movie film, Capone, this is the one with Tom Hardy, and What We Do in the Shadows. William writes The Brothers Grimsby, National Geographic, Inside the Green Berets, Skyfall, The Guardian, Act of Valor, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Corey writes the live-action Scooby-Doo, always a classic. Corey, i got to talk to you about my review of that on Fox 59 AM someday. Uh, Matt writes both Borat films plus the new right stuff. Okay. Uh, Lou writes Borat, subsequent movie film, The Globe Theater's Love's Labor's Lost, Always, Sometimes, Never, and the Hal Ashby documentary called Hal. Connor writes Little Evil. James writes Ganja and Hess. I need to get that in my collection, James. Thanks for reminding me of that. Christian writes Borat's subsequent movie film. Um, Tim writes Ides of March, all-star cast. Uh, Melissa also chimes in Maleficent and Mistress of Evil. Gary writes Countess Dracula and Robocop, the original, 1987. Paul Verhoeven. Uh, Joe writes Practical Magic, Hocus Pocus, Deliverance, Scary film of different kind, and Gone with the Wind. Larry writes uh, Diabolique, Simone Signor doing her thing. Yeah, you're, you're right on that, Larry. Uh, Beverly writes War Games, different scary movie, of a, a scary movie of a different kind. Uh, Doug writes Son of Frankenstein, Borat subsequent movie film, Jess Mercy, The Devil Doll, and Carnival of Souls. Steve writes The New Witches with Chris Rock, Octavia Spencer, Anne Hathaway, Kristen Chenoweth, Stanley Tucci. It was practically perfect. We loved it better than the original. And finally, Andy writes the original 1955 Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Emperor's New Groove. Thank you, Andy. And by the way, Andy, I brought her there to save her. And there we go, friends. That's what you've been watching. So hope you got some ideas, some inspiration. Hope you, uh, again... Discover new films or films that are new to you, as well as falling back on old favorites. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. And now we dip, because it's Halloween weekend I, and it's a blatant excuse for me to dip into the archives, I should remind you, last, of course, last week's guest was Sammy Terry, and he is busy this weekend in person and online. Go to SammyTerry.com to check out all the Sammy Terry goodies. And uh, also, if you're listening to this uh, Friday or Saturday, you might hear Sammy Terry on the radio on Saturday night as a part of a small studio. So that's happening at 9 o'clock. And you might hear him during the Blues House Party. You might. I'm just saying. Anyway, Shifting Gears, another fine horror show host, uh, Rich Coe's up in Chicago, a.k.a. Spanguli. You can see Spanguli Saturday nights at 8 on MeTV, for those who have that channel. And uh, many moons ago, I got to have not one but two interviews with Rich. Uh, first one was with Abdul Kim Shabazz and my daughter Emma in studio, and then I got to have a one-on-one epic chat with Rich Coe's, which you're going to hear right now. Enjoy. You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah, I've pretty much spent my whole life here in Chicago, my whole life and even my whole career. Uh, I I was born in Chicago, and about four years after that, we moved to some suburbs of Chicago. Such as? Uh, Around the Morton Grove Niles area. As a kid, what, what horror show host did you watch? I barely got in on one of the originals. I was very young, but I remember seeing at some relatives' houses when we were there late, uh, Marvin, Terry Bennett, who hosted Chicago's Shock Theater, 
Uh, back then, of course, that was the name. Shock was the name of the Universal movie package that was released all over the country. Mm-hmm. And that was where Vampira was first running her stuff out in L.A. And in Chicago, it happened to go to uh, WBKB-TV, where uh, Terry Bennett worked, and he became Marvin, the sort of uh, beatnik-type ghoul host. Would that lay the foundation for uh, Jerry G. Bishop? Um, not so much, because I think Jerry was already out of town by then, and... and uh, you know, working his way through radio in various cities, radio and TV. How old were you when you started watching Jerry? Uh, I was actually just about to enter college. And uh, what were your impressions of watching uh, Jerry work on television? Well, first of all, I'd been a fan of his anyway from his radio work. He'd been on the air doing morning radio and such uh, for many years already before he even hit that. And uh, I was a fan of his, so... I, you know, was tuning in just because I heard that he was doing some funny shtick in between things as just the voiceover announcer for the horror movies on Friday night. And as it was developing along, you know, I, I enjoyed the character that he was portraying as well and how he was kind of, you know, positioning himself between the various segments of the movie. Did he ever tell you how he developed the character? Uh, he he kind of was taking a tip from the famous Ernie Anderson, Goulardi, uh-huh. who was on opposite him on TV when he was working in Cleveland. But uh, Goulardi was another sort of beatnik-type character, and uh, Jerry decided to kind of update that and make it a sort of hippie ghoul. And so he kind of got, got the nod from that, and then... Uh, he always said that his his Bengali accent was kind of Bela Lugosi crossed with Yiddish. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was even funnier was he always described my accent as a combination of Bela Lugosi and Lawrence Welk. <laughs> <laughs> so so Berwin really loves you. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Much closer ties than I thought. Well, it's interesting because looking back, because um, I asked the question I had earlier about the foundation for Jerry is uh, because of the hippie persona, and then you mentioned the beatnik persona, um, I, it, it was interesting as a, as a youngster um, with my local horror show host. I, I grew up in Michigan, and ours was uh, Sir Graves Gastly out of Detroit. Mm-hmm is on the surface it was scary looking but then i realized watch looking back he 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 did a, a segment in drag he did a segment german he would uh, paint his face you know paint a face on his chin and uh-huh. be filmed upside down and he showed kids pictures and in uh-huh. your case looking at the early pictures by the way there's somebody here at work who grew up in elkhart and she wanted me to tell you you scared her when she was a little kid <laughs> yeah, I've heard that from a few people You're here right. and there. <laughs> but but the fact is you you know, you had, maybe the, the exterior was scary, but you know, you're cracking jokes the entire time and I thought with especially with Jerry's it's a hippie. He's not a vampire or a ghoul or a zombie. It's you know, it's a hippie that uh that delivers one liners. Right, exactly. I think part of it is just that the the characters I always said, you know, Pete, there were always been people who said, oh, "You should try to act more scary." <laughs> and I've often said, well, the only people who will be scared by that are, you know, kids under the age of five. It's not very effective. If you're trying to act scary and, you know, people are wanted, they're going to go, oh, come on. Whereas uh, making the character kind of comic relief to the horror is what seems to be what works. And for the most part, that's what most of the very successful hosts have done, whether it be tongue-in-cheek or, you know, just blatant, you know, goofballs like myself. What did you think the first time you saw Count Floyd on SCTV? I I thought he was hilarious. It was funny because I had actually seen Joe Flaherty, who played Count Floyd, live at Second City while he was in his tenure here in Chicago. It was right after I got out of high school, in fact. And uh, I thought he was a very funny guy to begin with. But then when I saw that, I thought it was really hilarious. And one of the things that somebody brought up is, You know, uh, he obviously was still doing Second City here in town. He hadn't gone back up to uh, Canada during the time that Jerry was doing his Svengooly stuff here. So it it seems like, you know, a little bit of that might have been, you know, (laughs) added into his whole uh, Count Floyd persona. The the idea of, you know, running movies that maybe weren't quite, you know, what you would want to run during the time. Because Jerry had a few that were like, wait a minute, this isn't really a horror movie, and yeah, I thought Count Floyd was very, very funny. Now, I know you started sending jokes to Jerry. Um, what Do you remember the first one he ever used? I I think it was something like, 
<laughs> You'll love this one. Okay. What do you call a grave in Russia? A what? A communist plot. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I think that's being used on Fox News today, so it's all right. <laughs> well, yes, it's right up their alley there. Yeah, so at first I was just sending him random jokes that I thought he could use because he was, you know, actually soliciting them from viewers. And then uh, I, I, you know, let him know a little bit about what I was doing, that I was a broadcasting student. And I actually wrote something that was more specific for him. And he started to kind of request specific things, like, can you do a parody of such and such commercial or uh, something like that? So it, it got into more long-form things than just separate jokes. And how long before he invited you into the studio to work? I would say it was at the most about a year probably a little less than that. And uh, he had me come in, and he, I ended up going in there, and he'd say, hey, can you do this voice for me off camera? And uh, you know, I did some artwork that he needed for the show. Uh, one of the guys working there then would jokingly refer to me as Jerry's art director. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he had me going with him and, and doing his public appearances with him as various characters and such. And, uh, you know, and then it became pretty much he was trying to work it out so that I would have a full-time job at Channel 32. But before that happened, his uh, Spengoolie show was canceled. So, Well, before the birth of Sun, what did your parents hope you would be doing at this time? You know, I don't know that they had any specific uh, direction that they were hoping I would go in. My dad worked in sheet metal and ventilation, and I think he pretty much knew that I wasn't planning to go in that direction. They knew that I, I liked radio, and I think they they kind of thought that I would go in, in that direction in broadcasting, but I don't know that they expected me to go into television as well. Well, how did, uh, how did Son of Spengoolie come about? Uh, basically, what happened was there was a time in between <laughs> when I became son of Spengooley and when Jerry stopped being Spengooley that uh, one of the guys that was a friend of Jerry's at one of the local stations had called him and said, you know, you should just do Spengooley just as a summer fill-in thing for us here. And they talked about it a little bit, and Jerry was like, well, I don't know that I want to dress up in this stuff again. And he <laughs> said, you know what? He said, he said to me, why don't you could be like son of Spengooley, and then you and I can write and, you know, produce the thing together. And I was like, sure, that'd be cool. And then we talked about it, kicked around, had some false starts on it, and nothing ever really happened with it. And then a couple years down the road, when Jerry was going to head out to San Diego to do radio and TV there, he said, well, you know, what are you planning on doing now? Because somebody else I had been working with, uh, Dick Orkin, do you know him? Uh, I've Very heard famous, the name. Uh, famous radio guy who did radio commercials and did a lot of uh, famous uh, modern radio serials like Chicken Man. Oh, right. Tooth Fairy. Yeah. Uh, I'd been working with him, and he went off to L.A., and now Jerry was leaving, and he said, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, maybe I'll try to pitch some local station on a, on a TV show and see if I can make any inroads there. And he said, I tell you what, if you want to try to do the Son of Spengooley thing, you have my blessing. And so he kind of handed that off to me and – which was very flattering that he would, you know, take the character that he had created and kind of, you know, turned it over to me more or less. Now, for those who 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 don't go on YouTube, what what was the besides the look? What was the biggest difference between uh, Jerry's uh, character and yours? Uh geez, let's see. Well, Jerry used to play the guitar and sing, and uh, I cannot play the guitar well enough to do that. We thank you for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, anytime. Believe me, you wouldn't want to sit through that. Um, but basically, it's the same type of character, you know, kind of mm -hmm. wisecracking. And uh, I think Jerry's character, I don't know how to put this better, it was a little more aggressive than mine. And, and I think that, you know, Sven is more, uh, the one that I'm doing is more the Jack Benny character who is set upon by the other characters and such around him. Whereas Jerry was more, you know, the wise guy who was, you know, dealing with the others or something. And, yeah, so you're the chicken butt of the jokes. Yes, exactly. Well put. Thank you. Uh, and when did the chi was the chickens uh, your creation? The the the, fly the flying chickens. Oh no, that that went back to Jerry. Okay. Uh, you know the famous old vaudeville prop of a rubber chicken. Right. Uh, he decided that whenever he would. Uh, do some bad joke, which was pretty often. <laughs> he would be pelted with those rather than tomatoes or something like that, or bricks, which would not have been pleasant. Or or the giant hook. 
The giant hook, yes. That would have been much more difficult to have one of the stagehands maneuvering all the time. you got to also spread the fun to people, because if there's one thing people always request is, can I come and throw chickens at you? Gee, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I'm at the bottom of the scroll right now. <laughs> I see. <laughs> My first uh, viewing of you, of course, was on uh, was syndicated on Channel 50 in Detroit, and this was in the early 80s. How did the syndication uh, come about? Well, after... Uh, there had been various shows that had run back and forth. They had tried to run The Ghoul from one of uh, the stations that was owned by uh, oh, which which company was it at the time? Kaiser, I guess, Kaiser Broadcasting. And they actually bumped Jerry Spanguli off so that they could run The Ghoul. And he was not well accepted in Chicago because <laughs> compared to Jerry's character, this was you know an interloper. And he didn't make any friends because we first started out saying, I'm like, yeah, we got rid of that bum Svengooly. Ooh, ah. Yeah, nice work. Nice. <laughs> but uh, based on that and the fact that there was a guy in power at our Chicago station who was running all the field stations, they were field stations by then. Right. Uh, he really believed in what I was doing, and he wanted to get it on the other channels. And the funny thing was that we ended up on five different channels in different cities, but a lot of the stations, for some reason, felt that this was being forced on them, so they would not promote it, and uh, you know they would do nothing to help us out. And now, years later, I hear from people who watched me in the various cities, and they were like, oh, yeah, everybody used to watch that. And I had no idea that there was an audience watching me back then. And they say, oh, you went to Chicago after this. And I said, no, actually, I was in <laughs> Chicago the whole time. And we would customize the opens and closes especially so that it would look like, you know, it was something, you know, with jokes playing off that specific city. It was kind of a pain because we'd have to reshoot every open and every close for each city, mm -hmm. and I'd have to rewrite it so that I would get in local jokes. What were the other cities? Uh, we were in San Francisco, Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago. I remember because you made a crack on Bill Kennedy, who hosted the uh, the local show, the right, local movie sure. show in the afternoon, and I remember calling Channel 50 and asking about you, and they told me that you were based out of Chicago, and I didn't believe them. No, because <laughs> because you mentioned Bill Kennedy. How do you know? Of course, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. well, it was funny because when we were going to do it, I asked each one of the stations, "Can you just send me a bunch of me like a weatherman that I can make fun of? Uh, you know, various locations in the city, sports teams, uh, and out of the stations, a couple of them sent really detailed stuff, and the rest were like, "Yeah, never mind." Okay, I have to ask, how was Detroit's treatment of you? Detroit was uh, fairly weak. <laughs> Sorry. They they sent like just a little bit of information and a Detroit Pistons uh basketball jersey. <laughs> you still have it? I think I I believe I gave it to one of my brothers after the show was <laughs> over. How so how long did this uh did this last the the syndication? It varied in the cities from like about uh, 6 months to a year. Okay. And a lot of that was because they just, you know, they didn't promote it, and they felt like it was not, you know, it was not something they wanted to do. It wasn't their production. At one point, we actually went to Philadelphia and shot on their set. They built a whole set just for me to shoot on. Wow. And everybody there, for the most part, was not cooperative. You know, we were doing different bits and stuff. We ran a, a bit that was pretty famous that we did, uh, Mr. Robber's Neighborhood. Right. Uh, where, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be like a Fred Rogers as a criminal who breaks into people's homes. That's why he changes his shoes so they can't hear him. Right. And he was talking about how he had a good sharp knife to do something with. And one of the the engineers there goes, oh, that's nice, teaching kids to use knives. Wow, this coming from Philly fans that cheer when Santa Claus get uh, taken off on a stretcher at Eagles games. <laughs> well, Yikes. What can I tell you? So it was an uphill battle in most of those places, and I think that's why it didn't last, in, a, in especially in a couple of those cities. Well, from, from a kid's standpoint, it felt like it was on longer, and I, I mean that as a compliment, and I think also because of the test of time and there's no inter Internet, and it was you had to be there for that time unless you had a, v a VHS or Betamax. You had to be there for that time to see the show. Exactly. Yeah, that that was it. You know, uh, that's why I hear these people now who see the old clips and they go, "Wait, I remember when this was on in, in you know San Francisco or whatever." Yep. 
It, it's it's quite a story. I think San Francisco was the city that we were in the longest, and that was like a full year. By then, all the others had dropped out. Some of the other characters that you had now was was Durwood from the Jerry era, or was and and you inherited him? Yes, Durwood, the ventriloquist puppet, was from Jerry's era, and uh, to this day, <laughs> I wish he hadn't picked such a high falsetto voice, which he could do much better than I could. Because I felt he should still have a similar type voice. You know, I didn't want to change the voice on it, but it's much harder for me to do. Uh, Tombstone was a, a character based on, really, he had a female skull named Zelda. And, uh, again, I, I didn't want to do the exact same thing with that, so uh, we created Tombstone. His name originally was Zalman T. Tombstone, Jr., and it was a playoff on the old Billy Saluga character, Raymond J. Johnson Jr., oh, that was very popular right. at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Tombstone even had his own little litany, you know, like like that. He doesn't have to call me Johnson type thing, you know. But you can call me Toomey, or you could call me. And it, it, we did that at a while at the beginning. After all, I was like, I think people will be sick of this. Let's just. <laughs> I always imagined Tombstone sounded like if if Bob Dylan and the Kingfish had a child. Yeah, that's pretty close. I'd okay. Say, definitely. <laughs> Tell us about the evolution of Kerwin. Kerwin, yeah. Well, we, we've had a series of different sort of uh, puppet-like assistants doing the mail. The first was our piano player, Doug. Right. And he, he was actually a live person. <laughs> uh, but he often couldn't stay around long enough because he, he's, in actuality, a, a working musician who constantly has different gigs all over the place. So he couldn't wait around until we got, you know, after we did the song to do the music. Uh, we did the music bits, and then uh, we'd have to wait to do the mail after we did several other things, and he often couldn't stay around. So we just said, well, let's try some things. And we had uh, a bat whose voice was like a sort of processed high-tone thing. Right. And it was so annoying that one of the bosses in charge here actually said, I want you to get rid of it. And we had to actually do a bit where he was fired because he couldn't stand that voice. <laughs> And then we, for a while, we had a uh, pterodactyl who was a disc jockey who was the assistant, and uh, a dinosaur, I believe. We're very into reptiles at times. I see. And finally, we had a spider for a while, and because he had eight legs, he had eight different voices, and for some reason, that just didn't work at all. But finally, uh, someone from our kids' show, Green Screen Adventures, a young lady named Jessica Hope Carlton, who uh, is very adept at building puppets, kind of as a surprise, uh, cooperating with my uh, director, came up with this. She used like one of those sort of alligator-type things you buy at the zoo. It's like a head on a stick, and you pull the little trigger to make it talk and move the mouth. And she combined that with the body of a rubber chicken and created Kerwin as a prehistoric rubber chicken. Who sounds like Jerry Lewis. Who, yeah, well, when I first looked at him, when they gave him to me, he had these kind of goofy eyes and funny teeth. And for some reason, it struck me that he, he sort of looked like very young Jerry Lewis. So that was why he got the voice. It was kind of like this. Do you also not bring up Dean Martin around him? <laughs> no, I constantly bring up <laughs> Dean Martin just to make him angry. <laughs> so speaking of Doug, how do you select the music for the shows? You know, it's, I've often been asked by one of my coworkers, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> I'll say, you know, I want to do something, you know, this is like flying to the moon. And he'll say, okay, uh, and he comes up with all these songs with moon in it, and then I'll go, I know, and, and come up with some song that has no word moon in it, and he'll be like, wait, I don't get it. But there's some way that I can tie in certain lyrics that sound exactly like, you know, what, what the originals are that has something that has something to do with the movie. And how did you meet Doug? Doug and I went to high school together, actually. We ah. were in band together in high school. And uh, we became friends and, and just hung around together. And uh, when I started doing TV shows, I figured, you know, it would be great to have him help out. What did you play? I played trombone. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played trombone, so oh, we... please don't ask me to do a solo. Oh no, that's right. well, we we live in the land of J.J. Johnson. We wouldn't ask you to do that. Well, but, certainly, uh... yeah. But I also I also imagined you as Woody Allen in Take the Money and Run, where you played the cello, but you also had to drag the chair during the parade. <laughs> Let me tell you, being a trombone player in a parade is not fun because you're right at the front of the band, because obviously because of the slide action, they put you there, and also. 
when you're playing, you don't get to look down and see if there's anything dropped by the horses that were earlier in the parade. <laughs> that was one of the biggest hazards. And I always thought that doing marching band out on a field was one of the most unmusical experiences ever because you think you're doing these formations and stuff, and half the instruments turn away from the stands while they're walking in you know, some pattern, and that means they can't hear that part of the music. So oh, <laughs> it's geez. like you're not hearing the whole you know, thing like you do in a concert. What's the deal? How did Jerry and you come up with all of those sound clips? Well, with Jerry, it was a matter of, you know, he used them in his radio stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had a huge library of, of uh, sound effects and little sound bites and things that they, he passed a lot of on to me. And actually, it was the same thing with me because I wanted to be in radio and I also did that. I mean, maybe it's not as common anymore, but a lot of disc jockeys used to use little, you know, sure. these little sound bites, uh, little, you know, cart-type reactions and because they were on audio carts that you'd throw into the machine. And I uh, just built up this whole library, and of course, once I started here, a lot of the guys had suggestions for things or would find something in a show or in a commercial. They, oh, you know, you should really use this, so... We've got it all. It's all now computerized, obviously, like everything else. It's all digital, and it's in a little uh, a little machine that we could just call up a number and hit. How many films or how many episodes do you record in one batch? Uh, it varies. We've done as many as nine. Wow. Which is, you know, uh, we're in the studio from noon until 9 o'clock every night when we do these. Okay. And that's a long haul. Believe me, being in that makeup for that length of time, not pleasant. But, uh, yeah, we've done as many as nine, and a comfortable range is usually five, I would say. Okay. Because that gives us a, a little, you know, easier time of it. And we're not, like, under the gun like, you know, Lucy in the candy factory. <laughs> and when you're selecting the films, is there a pattern? I mean, you know, sci-fi, horror, monster movie, killer movie. Is is there a pattern of any kind? Well, it's not so much a pattern. Uh my idea usually is to try to vary it somewhat because we do get people who will often complain about the fact that we're doing uh you know too many mummy movies all at once or too many frankenstein movies and you know to me it's like you're complaining about these universal classics okay whatever <laughs> but i try to to vary them when i can and also, there are certain ones that we have only a certain time window for, so we have to make sure that they can air only during, like, we've had movies that we can only run during one month, Jeez. so we have to, you know, make sure it gets in then. So a lot of times it depends on what the contractual window is, the window of time that we can fit the movies in, and, you know, what what's available to us at what times. Right off the top of your head, what are some of your favorite and least favorite films that you've shown over the years? No, favorite ones, uh, definitely Bride of Frankenstein. I do like uh, House of Frankenstein. I got to run Nightmare on Elm Street, which I really enjoyed, and Halloween, the originals. I really enjoyed those. Ones that I don't like as well, eh, there's quite a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) I think I may have mentioned to you before the uh, Midnight Movie Massacre, which was an absolutely terrible movie. There was one movie that I often cannot remember, Track of the Vampire, oh. which is so bad and boring. It's a movie where half of it was shot in California and the other half was shot in Yugoslavia, and neither side knew what the other side was doing. <laughs> and it was so bad that when I was at Channel 32, we actually intercut it with with a bunch of other things. And we did one whole segment that was kind of, you know, Svens around where it had changed and suddenly – the, the woman – it's a scene where this woman is being chased all through the city and into the ocean by the vampire. Mm-hmm. And with my redubbing, it became the fact that she was supposed to show up for swim team practice and didn't want to. And that was the coach running after her. <laughs> and at times, there was like a bald lifeguard who showed up. So naturally, his voice became that of Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was one of the really, really awful ones. I would say, does is it the quality of the film that gets it a a Spence around treatment, or have you? I, I think I remember once you did it with even with Night of the Living Dead. We we did separate scenes from that. A lot of times I'll lift scenes, and it, so it doesn't interflow. I mean, interrupt the flow of the movie, or you know, ruin people's enjoyment of the actual movie itself. If it's a really bad movie, a lot of times the only way to save it is to do something like add some sound effects to it along the way. 
Um, now, I know there was one of the writers from Mystery Science Theater 3000 grew up in Chicago. Have you heard – have you made contact with any of those guys before? No, I've never been in contact with them. I've heard from other people that, you know, they've they've done little shout-outs to Sven in some of their shows that uh, one guy said he went to some convention and dressed as me and ran into one of them, and the guy immediately said, hey, your son is Sven Gooley. Okay. <laughs> they, they know about it. And I remember reading an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were talking to, to a couple of the guys, and they said, you know, we weren't the type of guys who were trying to, you know, pick up, uh, cousin Brucey on the radio from New York or whatever like that. We were trying to watch people like Ray Rayner, who did a morning kids show here in Chicago, and Sven Gulli. So they were aware of, of both, and uh, they they obviously saw both Jerry Sven Gulli and my son of Sven Gulli. Have you ever talked to any of the filmmakers or actors whose movies you've uh, you've aired? Very rarely. Uh, you know, a lot of them right now, of well, course, the universal folks, a lot of them not are around. <laughs> uh, although I did hear, uh, I've got a couple guys who do a great website called Terror from Beyond the Daves. And it's, uh, they have a blog about different horror hosts and horror-oriented things. And they both are guys who grew up watching me and are big fans. And now, especially with our national exposure, when they go to conventions, they, they get a lot of feedback about the show from people. They ran into Julie Adams, who was the beautiful woman in the white bathing suit in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And she was just thrilled to hear that, you know, we show her our, her movie on our program. And the same thing with uh, Tippi Hedren from The Birds. Sure. She, we ran at, uh, The Birds here in Chicago and won the time slot. Which was just you know incredible for you know it's like Sven Gulli winning the time slot, good grief. <laughs> but she was another one who was just thrilled to hear that we were running that show on free broadcast TV since it hasn't appeared on that very much, and it, it's just really great to you know get even these secondhand things. I did meet uh, Robert England, Freddy Krueger, and it turns out he's a big fan of my show. He's been watching it out in California now. And he's had a lot of very complimentary things to say about it, which is really nice. Lance Henriksen mm-hmm. met up with him. He's a very nice guy. It was a lot of fun and seemed to enjoy the show. Um, we, we ran him in Pumpkinhead uh, a couple yes. of times. Mm-hmm. And I think Piranha 2 as well. So. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> How often are you allowed in Berwyn? I'm allowed there any darn time I want to be there. <laughs> Do you have the key to the you. city yet? They don't even need a key. I've got like a key card. Just lets me in and out. It's not a problem. Actually, yeah, it's funny because just about, I'd say, 95% of the people in Berwyn love that we do the stuff that we do about that city. And they know it's just jokes. Uh, for a while, they had a mayor who was, was you know, oh, you know, we we don't want to be the butt of Sven Gulli's jokes. And yet any time I'd show up there, he always made sure he was there to get a picture shaking my hand. Politician. Yes. And... Uh, and, and occasionally it's like the, the people who are like, oh, you know, you shouldn't make fun of our town. But uh, the thing is, every time I've done a radio interview or TV interview and people have asked about Berwyn, I've always, you know, stated what I just told you and the fact that it's a really nice suburb. The people are very nice there. They're all hardworking people. And now they're trying to be, you know, a little more upscale and they're adding more arts and, and things. And, uh, you know, God bless them. It's it's a nice place, and it also has my favorite horror collectibles store, a place called Horror Bolts, which has a real nice stock of all sorts of things. How did you pick Berwyn out of all the all the towns for the for the bit? That was Jerry's doing. Uh, back when he was trying to figure it out, um, he had always uh, had uh, when he was in Cleveland. Uh, Goulardi, Ernie Anderson made fun of a suburb called Parma. And when he came here, he had that in mind. And he also, at that time, Rona Martin's Laugh-In was kind of winding down, uh-huh. and they were making fun of beautiful downtown Burbank, as was Johnny Carson. And he thought, well, we, we need to do something like that. We can make small-town jokes about that. It would be funny. And he was trying to decide on something, and he ended up having a sponsor that was from the Berwyn area. And when he went there, it, it seemed like the one street, Ogden Avenue, was all – <laughs> savings and loans and used car lots. And then he found out that they had the yearly parade in honor of mushrooms, the Hobie Parade. <laughs> Hobie is Czech for a mushroom. Yeah. And he decided this would be a good place to, to use as our uh, our city that we uh, kind of poke fun at. 
Well, it has a it has a flow to it compared to say Downers Grove, Westmont, or Wheaton. Yeah, you can't go like Cicero. It doesn't flow as well as Berwin. Is 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 there a film that you've always wanted to show and had not have not had a chance to do yet? Yes, Fiend Without a Face. Do you know that movie? Um, the French film, right? No. Oh no, no, I'm, no. Thinking, I'm thinking of Eyes Without a Face. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm this, sorry. Is, this is like a, a cheapo. I think it's an American international one. Okay. Where there's something invisible that is killing people, and they're not sure what it is. And at some point, they find a way to make them visible, and it turns out there are these brains with spinal columns that kind of like inch along. They were done with stop motion animation. And when they are fighting with them, when you shoot one, it makes a noise like a whoopee cushion kind of and, and lets loose the sort of raspberry jelly type stuff. Is this the way that the flying brains with the eyes? Or uh, am I something else? It, it, you may be confusing it with uh, the brain from Planet Eros. Ah, okay. All right. <laughs> but these, you would remember these right away because they're, okay. they're smaller brains, about the size of a human brain, but they had this sort of spinal column, and they inch along like an inchworm using that. And they can also, like, leap through the air. Well, this is my YouTube project for the day. That's good. All right. Yes, you'll enjoy it. Believe me. Now, now how long have you been with the U? I have been here since 1995. At WCIU, and then as we've added more stations, uh, my shows have gone on to the various stations, and including now our network, MeTV. How did the MeTV deal come about? Because of the great success we had here in town, when the U first went on, it was kind of a hybrid of, of what MeTV is and uh, also a little more modern-type programming that we would uh, manage to get. And as we went along, uh, my boss, Neil Sabin, who was like a genius, <laughs> had uh, <laughs> noticed that uh, like Nick at Night and TV Land were changing dramatically, and they weren't what they originally were supposed to be, you know, with this classic TV stuff. And he had this idea of making me t uh, the MeTV station, which we did first locally here, and he felt that there was viability to that across the country since, you know, people weren't really getting that presented the way that we presented and uh he managed to start you know start the wheels in motion and now we're in almost 80 percent of the country and yeah. it, it's especially amazing that it happened in about a year's time to have that kind of progress really says a lot for what neil could do and and what the me tv nation uh, national network can do i'd say you could call those other syndicated cities from the 80s and blow raspberries at them but they're probably not there anymore or, or probably dead <laughs> oh, you never know. Yeah, most of the people involved have probably moved on and uh, are not quite around anymore or, yeah, have been deposed. Knowing the nature of television, they probably lost their jobs. And... They're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Yes, and I'll shed a tear for them like that Indian standing <laughs> alongside the highway. For me, TV, is it strictly universal films? Right now it is, yeah. Uh, we have a, a really nice contract with Universal, and we're actually working on an extension of that for the future that would add in even more films for us. And we're hoping that that'll happen. And this is really, you know, the first broadcast TV national uh, exposure for these universal horror films since many, many years ago. Which I think is a, a really cool thing. I know uh, I, recently there's been films like The Mole People, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. And I know... Uh, uh, the uh, the horror film with uh, Dirk Benedict and and uh, Strother Martin. I mean, those are ones I can't even think of the last yeah, time you're I talking saw them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's cool that you 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 look for films that have not seen the light of day in a long time. Yeah, and I think it's it's really an education for a lot of people because there is a generation that hasn't seen these. We, when we were kids, it seemed like they ran them much more on television, and now if they run at all, they've run on cable as opposed to on, you know, actual broadcast TV. So the fact that we're kind of, you know, reintroducing these to a lot of people who maybe never saw them before is, is really great. It's nice to continue the universal legacy. And and also from a, you talk about from an educational standpoint, I love when you do a segment based on who these actors appeared in, you know, what other films they've appeared in, what the director has worked on. You know, when, when my daughter saw that Bella Lugosi played the Frankenstein monster, that, that blew her lid a little bit in a good way. Uh, sure, yeah. There are things that people really don't expect uh, or, you know, they don't know about connections to various things. Like the people who ended up 
playing some other part on on a TV series years later that they had no idea that that ever happened. So it's very cool to be able to, you know, make these connections for people or just remind people, you know, this guy also did this. And at times it's it's really a tribute to the versatility of the actors, and, and it's great to show that they had a wide enough range to do so many things. You're walking IMDb, sir. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sitting right now, actually. <laughs> and I know also um... – You've you've also been showing comedy shows, and and don't listen to the internet. There's nothing wrong with that. With showing, you know, I know you've done the Three Stooges marathon and Abbott and Costello, and yeah, you know. Well, most of the Abbott and Costello stuff we've shown still has a horror element to it. It's not, you know, we're not just showing you know hit the ice or something like that. Right. Abbott and Costello meet the mummy or or you know Frankenstein or whoever. Uh, we've thrown in a few things here and there. Yeah, well, you know, Ghost and Mr. Chicken. There's still like a horror sure. scare element to that. If anything, you know, we've run some Marx Brothers movies, and uh, that's mainly because I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers. They were a big influence on me. And uh, you know, I again, I love when people are like, oh. This is wrong. You should be showing only scary things. And uh, it's like, have you noticed that a great portion of my part of the show is comedy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And we, we also like that, you know, you, you air it the same reason why dogs lick their elbows. Because you can. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and also, Thanks for saying elbows. Well, yes. Thank you for <laughs> saying elbows, too. Um and also, it's it's really cool that the, the show on MeTV, you've, you've kind of become an ambassador for local horror show hosts. It's a lost art. I mean, we have we have Sammy Terry popping up every every few months here in Indianapolis, but it, it's cool for you to give shout-outs to cities that have had hosts and you show other hosts and even show old photos of Jerry and you. Um, it, it's it's a lost art, I think, for local television. Well, with the, the way that uh, television has been going now in the TV economy, most local show, uh, stations do not do entertainment-type shows. They're mainly, you know, if they have budgets, they're going to do news and sports and public affairs and an occasional magazine show. But, you know, they're not going to do something that's strictly entertainment because, uh, according to them, it, it doesn't generate enough money to justify, you know, the studio time and editing time and everything like that. And when we first started here uh, locally, the people in charge of the station said, you know, well, maybe we're not going to make money on this, but it's an important part of TV and something that viewers really get an attachment to and make a connection with, and that's important to us. And now, of course, you know, we're, we're doing very well, and it's it's nice to see that people, you know, every every email I get from out of town, for the most part, will mention, we haven't had anything in town like this since, you know, in the 70s with, you know, Dr. Bad Teeth or something like that. So <laughs> there's always, everybody's got a horror host they watch sometime in their life, it seems. Do you do you do shows strictly for me, TV, and then you do shows strictly for the U? We, yeah, we have um, some shows that, that run basically – well, the ones that run on MeTV right now also run on the U. It's like a week delay basis. But then on the U2, we run some of the older ones that we have that we still have rights to or that are public domain. And I also do a Three Stooges show, Stooge Palooza, that runs on Saturday nights on our Me Too channel. So I was going to say, how often do you get to appear on TV as Rich? Uh, every week. Okay. <laughs> Basically, there yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm in the makeup, I'm out of the makeup, in the makeup, out of the makeup. Well, you, you're, you know, it, it keeps you young, maybe. Well, I don't know about that. Or but... young at heart. Okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> so so what's next for uh, for Spangoolie? Uh Right now, I, it seems like we're just continuing to go to more and more of the uh, places in America. More and more uh, stations are picking up the MeTV network and getting better distribution of it. And a lot of them we started out just over the air, and now it's going to cable as well in a lot of the cities and uh, wider distribution in in a lot of the cities. There are a lot of rumors about uh, out on the West Coast that uh, we're going to have more visibility out there. So uh, I think it's just a matter of the Sven show catching on in these various places, and then I think the next step after that is possibly starting to make public appearances all over the country, which should be fun. Well, you know, you have a place to crash in Indianapolis, that's for sure. Well, thanks. I appreciate that.
So there you go. Happy Halloween from Film Sociology. That's uh, that's my epic chat with Rich Coes. You can check out Spenguli Saturday nights at 8 on MeTV. And, of course, for you indie folks, go to SammyTerry.com to find out all the stuff about Sammy Terry. There's merchandise and there's events, virtual and in person. So support your local or in this, and in one case, national, regional horror show hosts. It's a lost art, and we should cherish them while we can. Friends, some words to live by. Silent Green is people! Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. There's plenty out there. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're staying sane. Hope you're being good to one another. And don't forget to vote. And we'll try this again next week, friends. Thank you for listening. We're going to end this week's show. Well, I'm playing this on the Blues House Party because uh, Halloween falls on a Saturday. This, And even if it doesn't, this is still a Halloween tradition over at the Blues House Party. But I love this song as well. Here's Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. And happy Halloween, Fort Myers. Happy Halloween, California and happy Halloween, Michigan. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. Stop the things you do. let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What parent are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs> we'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live!